There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 293. I'm sitting in the parking lot uh, on the outskirts of Nashville at a place called the Loveless Cafe and Motel, which is like a really cool enclave of shops and kind of retro stuff. Uh, it's really neat. If you're ever in Nashville, uh, check it out. What is happening? We're turning into a travel show. <laughs> okay, that was the last travel thing. And I'm not going to tweet any pictures of food, so <laughs> you'll be okay. Uh, we're going to get through this, you guys. Uh, I am currently performing in Nashville at Zany's, uh, doing shows Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, the 7th, 8th, and 9th of December. And then next weekend, I will be in Chicago, Thursday and Friday at Zany's in Chicago, and then Saturday in Rosemont, which is technically not Chicago. Uh, not even technically, it's just not Chicago. It's the outskirts of Chicago. So uh, if you were thinking of coming to the Saturday show, just know that it is in Rosemont. Um, I would love to thank uh, to this episode of the Nerds Podcast a brand new sponsor uh, and something that's super, super, super awesome and I think very, very relevant to your interests. Uh, it's a huge graphic novel uh, known as Anomaly. Quick dramatic synopsis. Set in the 28th century when most of mankind lives in off-world colonies, a.k.a. space slums, and a corporate oligarchy known as the conglomerate conquers planets to strip mine them for valuable resources. Anomaly centers on a diplomatic mission to a mysterious uncharted planet where things quickly go awry. What unfolds next is a war for the fate of the planet, aptly named Anomaly, and the beginnings of a much larger anti-conglomerate resistance. Uh, so... That sounds awesome, and it's a giant, you can get the giant coffee table book, but there's this really cool interactive thing that you can do. They have There are two apps that you can get that go along with it. The first is the Anomaly Ultimate Augmented Reality app, which is free when you get the book, and what it does is it actually brings uh, 3D animations onto the smartphone or the tablet like when you're reading the book. It, it works in conjunction with the book, and as augmented reality suggests, augments the reality of the book. So that's available for iPhone and Android. But the second app is the Anomaly Interactive Book app, which is currently it's iPad only, but later this month it's going to be on Google Play. It's a complete book with a full three-hour experience, like an animated version of the book with three hours of audio from 12 voice actors. There's an original score. It's a a really cinematic experience. And the first chapter is available for free, which is 38 pages long, and then you can upgrade for $4.99 to get the rest of the book uh, on the app. So... That anomaly, check it out. Uh, it looks amazing and uh, super interactive and, and kind of fun. I, I, you know, I, I, augmented reality. I, I've been wanting to see more and more augmented reality stuff uh, lately. Do you remember a couple years ago and like augmented reality? It's going to be everywhere. You can't walk anywhere without holding up your phone and seeing everything. Uh, and it hasn't entirely happened yet. So I'm I am pleased to see this uh, this branching off into the world of comics. So that's anomaly, and I thank them for sponsoring the Nerds Podcast. This episode is Paul Williams, and some of you will be like, holy shit, Paul Williams, and other people might not know who that is, but I am telling you, 
that if you've ever heard music, Paul Williams has written a song that you have probably loved. Uh, let's just start with the fact that he wrote the Muppet movie soundtrack. He wrote Rainbow Connection! And he talks about it in his podcast. Uh, he was also in Smoking the Bandit as Little Linus Burdett, Smoking the Bandit fans. But then he wrote, like, for Three Dog Night, he's written, uh, he wrote a lot of the Carpenters hit songs. Like, if you just go through and see what songs he wrote, you'd be like, oh shit, that one too, that one too, that one too. If you had just written any one of those songs, uh, you would be an accomplished songwriter. So, Paul... Uh, is in this documentary uh, that basically is about the idea that is the fact that he's still alive. This guy sought Paul Williams out thinking that he was dead and discovered, oh, Paul Williams is actually still alive. Uh, he, Paul Williams is not dead. And so the whole documentary is about this this insane kind of uh, ride that Paul went through and struggles with substance abuse and he had kind of dropped off the map for a while and then and then come back. And so uh, it's, uh, it's a super cool... Uh, super cool movie, and, and Paul was wonderful, and so uh, if you're a fan of music, or a fan of the Muppets, or, or he's also really funny, he's a, he was a, a fascinating guest, and, uh, and kind of inspirational at the same time, so here you go, the Nerds Podcast number 293, with Paul Williams. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's not a crazy formula. If you don't eat as crappy and exercise a little bit, a little bit. it all works out. Yeah, exactly. Just have less fun all around. <laughs> I've seen parts of my body I've forgotten I had. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if the less fun all around uh, mantra is really great. So there's that. No, there, you know, it's, there's definitely... Sorry. Life is better this way. I feel better. And I'll live longer, you know? I want a few more years on the old calendar. Yeah, you take it for granted when you're young, because you're like, ah, ah, Screw I'll it. just, I'll pay for this later. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it becomes later, and you're like, what did I do? Yeah. Yeah, later Oops, rolls in really quickly. <laughs> it really does. Oh, my God, early later. Later is, later is always upon us. Yeah. So, uh, I, oh, good, there's some waters. Very cool. Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Very cool. Thank you. Help yourself if you have to have a, if you need a you cranberry crunch, they're really <laughs> There's someone downstairs. So. What's that sound? Yeah, what is that? From that. So how long are we doing? Seven hours. Seven hours. It's Got a marathon. Eh, <laughs> hey, you know, 45-ish. How long are we doing? 40, 45 minutes or so. Okay, it's a gotcha. loose chat. Just jabber. Uh, oh, is that, is that, 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 that machine? coming from over here. Time for new glasses. These are getting so scratched. Oh, I can't get them clean. You have that oh, one too? I've been there. Oh, I have oh, been there. That is some pain in the ass. This now, is a joke, somebody... right? <laughs> hey, Nick. Can I turn this Dell off? Do you need this for anything? It's no. making a weird... Leave it. No, no, I haven't used any of that stuff in years. So... What if the whole building shuts down? <laughs> the one Dell computer. I just did a little force quit. The one Dell computer that's still working? Just a little, just a little force quit. <laughs> Paul Williams, it is a freaking honor to have you on the podcast. When I heard that you were even a possibility, I was like, you you have to get you have to get Paul Williams very on the show. Cool. I, very, very cool. I I mean, I, I am I grew up, I mean I'm my mom would is gonna freak out, especially. <laughs> I'm really good at that. I'm gonna you know, it's like 
Moms and the and occasionally grandmas. <laughs> so, you know, wow. No, no, no grandmas here. Just me, but me too. I mean, I you know, I just for people who may or may not be familiar, but I feel like everybody knows who you are. Yeah. Um, not always, but certainly one of the most prolific hit songwriters in popular culture. And let's just say the Muppet movie soundtrack, Rainbow Connections, the stuff for the Carpenters. Don't like forget Three Dog Muppet Night, Christmas Carol. Muppet Christmas Carol. You know what? The Muppet Christmas Carol got the worst reviews when it came out. And I get the oh, sweetest I love mail it. I love that. from people you know, that have made it a part of their Christmas. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, uh, it's really good. It's uh, of the later day Muppet movies. It's one of the more solid ones. It was the first one that Brian Henson directed, and I, I thought he did a great job. And you know, it was interesting because it was an early. You know, I was was newly sober. I'm 22 years sober, and so nice. my life has been divided into the Maybeville <laughs> and what I remember. You know? <laughs> so, this was past Maybeville. It was the very the, one of my great memories of of making the uh, the Muppet Christmas Carols. I walked up to. Uh, I walked up to Michael Caine and introduced myself. I said, I'm so happy to meet you. I've always wanted to meet you. And he went, I had out of your mind? We spent like a weekend together at the... At the <laughs> <laughs> you lost thousands of dollars. I, was, you know, I went, wait a minute, wait. Oh, my, how embarrassing. I'd, I'd forgotten. You know. uh, oh, my God, you're a, Michael Caine. It's a Kane. movie about a man having a spiritual awakening, and I had just had one. You know, So it was a really interesting time to be writing that. But the, the reviews were not good. They People just went, oh, pedestrian. And lyrics. Or, oh, who cares? You know what? Yeah, I, you I know the people. You know the, the people that matter actually love it. Like they critics, do. fucking hate everything. Who yeah, gives a shit? Yeah. Uh, but uh, buy some ski masks. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is you know I I would there, there's so many things I want to talk about with you. I mean, first of all, you know, and then we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the documentary, uh, the Paul Williams still alive documentary. But um, you know, I, I have. Uh, I have this YouTube channel. One of our partners is the Henson Company, so sure. I work with Brian and Lisa, and and um, you know we've been we just made a Fraggle Rock video with Ben Folds, okay. and and they're and they're great. But your what was what was your history like? How did you get involved with Henson? Did you meet Jim doing I, the Muppet Show? I actually went over to do the Muppet Show in, in England when I was like the first. I think the first, I think it was the, yeah it was the first season and what, and did the did the show. And just got along great with Jim, and he said, you know what? We're talking about doing a movie, but before we do the movie. There's, there's this. Um, God, I have, I have a, I have a Mrs. My Mrs. May's blueberry <laughs> crunch caught in my throat. <clears> throat. If I don't get it out, you're gonna have to call nine one one. No, actually, what happened is I went over to do the uh, do the, the the Muppet show show in England. Met Jim, and he said that we're gonna do this thing for HBO, a one hour special called Emma Daughter's Jugman Christmas. Amazing. And I, he said, would you be interested in writing the songs for it? And I and I love the Muppets. I mean. On the road, Sesame Street was the one thing, you know, that, that we always watched. The band, you know, we'd be going to bed, and, and you, the last thing before you're not out would be Sesame Street, you know. So, <laughs> he went so to bed at 7 a.m. Great awareness of, 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 the, of, of his amazing ability, and I had loved him back even seeing the Muppets on, on Ed Sullivan. So I sat down, I wrote the songs for, for Emma Daughter's Jugman Christmas. I did the underscoring with my little road band. And it was just a great, great beginning. He, you know, he was the the story that I love telling about Jim is that when, when we when that came out, and he then asked me to do the Muppet movie, I said I want a really great music writer to work with me, somebody better than me. So I brought Ken Asher to to work on these songs with me, and we sat down in my in the, my living room in the house in the Hollywood Hills with Frank Oz, and Jim Henson and Jerry Jewell, the screenwriter, oh, and, Jesus. And, and Kenny and I. 
And it was like, well, what are we going to write about? And I said, well, let's, we're going to do like a road picture, how the Muppets get together on the road. And what's the first song? Well, we're, we start out, we'll find Kermit in the swamp. What's he doing, Jim? And Jim sat there for a second. He went, playing the piano. <laughs> no, playing a banjo. Playing, <laughs> playing a banjo. I said, okay, yeah, I was going to do I'm not sure where we're going to put a banjo or a piano in the, in the swamp. <laughs> playing a banjo. Of course, he plays a banjo, plays the piano. We talked about the whole thing, and I said, I'll, I will keep you in the loop on the songs. I'll let you hear the songs as we write them. And he said, oh, no, I'll hear them in the recording studio. Oh, wow. And just, I mean, the immensity wow. of that trust. He, he trusted us, and we gave, he gave us the trust. We gave him the Rainbow Connection. Oh, wow. my God. The Rainbow Connection. He, where does, where does, I mean, is, for you, is songwriting, you just go, well, this is, a prob- this is the environment, and this is what's necessary for this. Do you start with a melody? Do you start with an idea? How does your, where does your brain well, go? Well, we start with banjo. What, are you, what is a banjo? Bing, ba doom ba doom ba doom ba doom little pause, you know. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? And the first thing that Kenny and I thought was we wanted to write, you know, Kermit is every frog. He is every frog, every man, every creature. He is this brilliant, in the, in the eye of the storm, here's this brilliant, calm, amazing little character. But he has an inner life, and we wanted people to see what his inner life was. So he, what does he think about? He's, you know, what, what is, you know, what is, what are the big questions for a frog? He's in the swamp, he has water, he has air, he has light, he has rainbows. And when we thought about rainbows, we thought about the greatest movie songs ever written, you know, uh, Over the Rainbow or, or uh, When You Wish Upon a Star. We have to do something that, it, we really set the bar high, high for ourselves to write a really great song. But, we, but it, that's what made its way into the first lines of the song. We, we know, what is the, you know, and the first line, Kermit asks, why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? With one line, you know that he's been to the movies, he knows about culture, he's, you, know, you get it all that he's a thoughty guy who said, that, why are there so many songs about rainbows? What's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, only illusions. Rainbows have nothing to hide. We went, oh, man, now we've done it. We've painted ourselves into a corner. <laughs> we've just denied the, you know, the, the whole mystic element of rainbows. You know? Now what the crap are we going to do? Here's some you know? science. So we've been told and some choose to believe it. I know the wrong way to see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. And it just rolled out. The one line we didn't have is rainbow connection. We yet someday we'll find it the la 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 the lovers the dreamers and me someday we'll find it the rainbow it's there's a, and we're sitting there and we're you know we've got the entire song done but we can't find rainbow connection and my my wife my kid's mother said what are you looking for we're looking for the connection to rainbows <laughs> you, know, uh, you know and she says yeah i said you know there's a uh, rainbows have a connection to uh, and she went you're looking for a rainbow connection and we went Oh my God! <laughs> and she said, "Well, you just said it three times." I went, "But we couldn't, you know." Wow! But it was just an amazing thing. The other thing that is one of my favorite stories is that I love Gonzo. Gonzo is a landlocked. Yes. Bird. Gonzo was my favorite Muppet. Gonzo's me and felt, you know. <laughs> He's, you know, you know, kind of an alien sort of a. We don't know what the hell he is. You know, a lot like me on drugs, but nicer <laughs> and, and more and, chickens. Um, and exactly, with chicken, he loved Camilla, you know. It's Camilla's the reason I don't eat meat or, or fowl anymore. I looked at Camilla and I, I said, I can't do that. To, uh, <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so, um, so there's this wonderful scene in, in the movie where, the, where they break down in the desert and Kermit feels like he's failed and everything. And for some reason, we thought, what a great place for Gonzo to look at the sky and have this kind of a spiritual thing about 
I'm going to go back there. So we wrote the song, I'm going to go back there someday, and played it for Jim. And it's, I mean, it's as far away from a children's song as you'll ever get. It's this really strange song about, you know, very esoteric about, I've never been there, but I know the way I'm going to go back there someday. Jim listened to it. He said, yeah, it's, he's like a landlocked bird and he wants to go back to the, what if we actually have something more concrete that he can relate to? So he wrote this whole thing with the balloons <laughs> where, where Gonzo buys balloons and he gets to experience flight and all. He was just the easiest guy to work with in the history of working on a, on a movie. Well, it's it, the, wow. what you said about you know. Of course, this wasn't for a kids' movie, but th- that was that was the soul of the Muppets, though. That it wasn't. It was for everyone. I mean, it's it sort of bums me out that we've gotten so you know uh, advanced with programming. We're like, well, now we can program just for kids, yeah. ages three. And it's like, exactly. yeah, but your you know parents want to have to watch something. They're going to have to watch stuff with their kids, yeah. and yeah. so much of the soul particularly of the Muppet movies, just that extra layer of music was was songs like, I'm, I mean, I was a kid and I didn't, I wasn't like, this seems like a grown-up theme. Like, I completely, totally sucked me in. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting because when you go back to, to uh, The Wizard of Oz, they, they took Somewhere over the, over the Rainbow out of the movie until, I think, three days before the movie was released. Oh, I didn't know that. The studio said flat out, the kids will not sit, sit still for this. <laughs> you know, this slows down the movie too much. Get rid of Another it, you know. great studio decision. Yeah. Exactly. And a couple of days before, somebody talked him into you know to putting it back in, which is you know the, the maybe the single greatest movie song ever written for a movie. I had a similar experience, oddly enough, with Brian and and uh, in the, the Muppet Christmas Carol. I wrote a song called "When Love Is Gone," yeah. which is not in not the, movie. the movie in the original release. Is it got put back in the DVD, but they thought it would slow the... Sorry, but I had to tell that story on you, Brian. But <laughs> oh, read your mail, Brian. Read your mail. They love it out there. They want it back in. <laughs> I'll never work for Brian again. Wow. I'm sure it'll be... I'm old anyway. No, no. Well, listen, you, I, it, you were sort of the perfect meld of singer-songwriter, but also comedian there was a comic gene and you do you i was reading i i I encourage anyone to just go look at your wikipedia page and go oh my god he wrote that holy shit he wrote that oh my god he wrote that like it's it's really insane like if you just wrote rainbow connection or if you just wrote um, the you know, love boat theme. The, the, did you write the love boat theme? Yeah, I wrote the love boat. I wrote the words to it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know you wrote the love. Jesus Christ! Love exciting and you come aboard. With We're expecting you. Did your wife come in and say, "Say the love boat"? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So we have to write about this boat, and there's love on it. Yeah. It's you know, a some kind of boat. I, like I could cure cancer. What I'd be remembered for is the love boat theme and playing Little Linus and smoking the bandit. I mean, well, yeah. listen, don't don't think. This Smokey the Bandit escaped my grasp. My grandfather had one of the first laser disc players, like the, the, the giant plate laser disc players in like 1979. And we had, my parents took me to see Smokey the Bandit in the theater because they had no language barriers for me, which was great for comedy development. And so when my grandfather, you could only get a few laser discs at that time. Sure. One of them was Smokey the Bandit. Yeah. And uh, you can't wear out a laser disc, but I pretty much, well, I've seen that movie. So many times. My favorite line about the movie is Billy Bob Thornton, who said, in the South, they consider smoking the bandit a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Jobs, it was a vacation to make and a job to watch. It was just We made three of them, Smoking the Bandit, Smoking the Bandit 2, and even worse, it was the last one. We titled the last one. Jeez. Pat McCormick, who was, you know, was just this crazy guy that, 
wrote so many of the uh, the monologues for Johnny Carson, wrote for Jack Benny, wrote for George Burns, a great comedy writer who was played my daddy in the yeah. Smoking the Bandit movie. He's six foot seven. I'm five two. And his first thing he ever said to me that we remember is walking out of a bar. He looked down at me and he said, "You know what, little guy? You look like an aerial photograph of a human being." <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! You know, I went oh, and I loved him. I said, "I was stationed on you during the war, wasn't I?" <laughs> <laughs> I was stationed on you during the war. So, uh, so we became great friends. We had a ball, and, and Bert saw that. Bert Reynolds, you know, uh, backstage at the Tonight Show, said, "We got to do something with you two guys." So, what? Uh, where did it all? Where did it all kind of start? I mean, you you were you were right. Did, was it an acting track that you wanted? Was it was it music first, or what? What was yeah, your it was acting first? I did a movie called The Loved One. I was in a movie called The Chase with Marlon Brando. Robert sure. I'm actually actually seen playing a little guitar. I picked up a guitar and started kind of doodling during the while we were shooting The Chase and made made up a song about Marlon Brando or Robert Redford's character being hiding in this this junkyard, going bubba bubba bubba, come out wherever you are. And Robert Duvall said, come over and show it to the Arthur Penn, the director, who said, here, stand there, play that, and do that again, and he photographed it, and he put it in the movie. That's probably the, wow. one of the first songs I ever wrote. Wow. But oh, wow. I was not a work actor. You know, I, 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 in my 20s, I looked like a kid. Uh, so I, I was, you know, I looked like a kid, so he put me next to a real kid, then I looked like a kid with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... so it was hard to cast in movies. If they were making a movie where they needed a kid and they were and they were shooting a lot at night, they looked for actors over eighteen. Sure. So you know, when I was high, you know, I was four foot six when I got out of high school. I'm five two now, so I took a spurt of another eight inches up to five two. But I was this tiny little guy. I looked really young. I had a when I was about nine years old, they gave me shots to make me grow because I was so small, and, and they gave me male hormone. And all it did is it, it made me horny, and, and, it, <laughs> and it closed off the bones, so I wound up being shorter. Oh, shit. But, so, yeah, it was weird. But, you know, it worked, where does it come from? It's like you feel different, so you, you, know, you respond to being different or feeling different. And i got to tell you, I've never met a comedian in my life who, no matter what shape he was in physically, he didn't feel different. Of course. You feel different, so you, you develop this... Humor as a defense, I think, as part of what you know, where I my whole my persona came from was just I went I went to nine schools by the time the time I was in the ninth grade, I was this little tiny guy who looked so much younger than everybody else. You know, I hit puberty really late, so it was like you know you're, you're in the showers with a body that looks like it's made out of cantaloupe. <laughs> Not a really great thing. You know? And you don't appreciate that until you're like now the age I am now, and you go, oh my God, I have so many more years than the rest of the world does because I am. 72 years old, and I am now actually 37. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's just, but I think that, that, that the humor was defense. You know, I think, you know, you're the new kid in school nine times by the time you're 14 was like, it was tough. So you learn to make people laugh. I wanted to act. I wanted to be somebody other than me. And when that all fell apart, I dealt with it emotionally by you know, writing songs became kind of my personal therapy. So in my life, no is a gift. If I don't get something I think I really want, I get what I need. I didn't get the acting career I wanted. I got the songwriting career that 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 you know made my life a, a, you know f for me a, a, an amazing life and and. Uh, to be a, to to be the age I am now and have somebody come up to me on the street and say, you know, my mom was a single mom, and you and me against the world was an important song to her. Or we got married, we've only just begun, or Evergreen. That's that's heart payment for a songwriter. So I feel like I made the right choices in my life, you know. Oh, that's including the ones in Mayville. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, because I mean, you know, I've. 
talked about this a million times on the podcast, but I'm in the same boat you are, and I've I quit drinking nine years ago, and so and so I have the you know I have that like oh there's a there's this section of time where some stuff happened, uh, <laughs> and then everything after that just feels like I've yeah. I've sh- I've shunt I've I've pushed it off to another person yeah. that I just call Peter Hardwick like that before 2003 was this uh, this chubby drunk named Peter Hardwick and everything after, but you know when I look back I go well. You know that all of that was something that I learned from, and I became the person I am today, and I'm happy about that. And so, I, it's not like, you know, what are you going to do? And the other thing is, you the, the you you have the the chance to actually refer to that and share information about that with people coming up and along the way that that can you, know, you can make a difference in their lives. Well, yeah. So this is this is this is something that is is interesting. Well, first of all, being a being a being in the music business and being a being a, a personality in the '70s. Seems like the most fun time to be because the music business is fucking way on top and television. There's only four channels. And, and if you're on television, like, you know, Everybody's 20 million people are watching every night. A, I did the Carson. I did the Tonight Show with Johnny 48 times. I joke that I remember wow. six. But Jesus. I did 48 times. So I, there was nowhere in the world that I could go, you know, that I wasn't, you know. And it's interesting because, you know, okay, you're different. Being different is hard. All of a sudden you're on Carson all the time. You're special. Being special was for me was addictive. That's one of the problems about uh, this whole thing with the, with the documentary. I didn't want a documentary. I didn't want anybody filming me or hanging a, a microphone on me because I had been addicted to the attention that I was getting. I mean, for me, just as as cocaine and vodka, you know, was highly addicting. So was was the camera being on me. Sure. So, and I don't think there's anything more pathetic than some little old man going, "Please, sir, may I have another cup of fame?" I mean, it's just <laughs> disgusting to me. So. Part of the whole thing about the documentary that I backed away from is I didn't know if I wanted to poke the bear again. I didn't know if I wanted to be doing what we're doing right now. I had no idea it would be so enlightening and and enjoyable. But I think it's important because... Hey, thank you, Paul. No. <laughs> oh, this! Thank you. Paul, thank you so much. You're welcome. But I, but what I, but, but I think it's important because... You know, the journey that you took and everything that you went through and then you came, you're still able to come out of it on the other side and, you know, you're, you're okay now and you look great and you're, you know, you're, you're 72. So, you, you know, you've, you've, you, I just, I think it's important for people who are struggling to, to go, oh, okay, well, if this guy, and especially at that time when my other big question to you is how do you get sober at a time when that's not really a trendy thing to do to get sober? Everyone's probably, oh, Paul, you're fine. Here, have some more of this. You're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't get sober at that time. I got sober 10 years later. Oh, okay. Like, exactly. <laughs> I, you, know, you know you're an alcoholic when you misplace a decade. Like the 80s, <laughs> 80s were gone for me. You know, it's like, are you telling me that Reagan was president? <laughs> what? <You're> joking. <laughs> the actor? Oh, God, the actor? <laughs> I knew I should have paid attention. Uh, but yeah, the '80s were gone. The '80s were the Ishtar years, you know. I wrote the songs for Ishtar. Uh. <laughs> perfect, the perfect, you know, metaphoric, sim- symbolic, you know, uh, piece of work that I did in the '80s was Ishtar, you know. But, uh, but yeah, what happened is, is you know, there's an old expression: you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. What happened is, for the first time in my life, wow. I turned to a lot of other people that had already gotten sober, and 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 which I'm not going to mention the 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 group that they belong to by name, but I'll tell you that 
that I turned to them and I said, I'm, I'm in trouble, I'm dying here, I don't have a clue about what to do and you need to help me. And they said, absolutely, it's what we're all about. And I found a family that is, is a worldwide family of recovering alcoholics and addicts. And, <laughs> it's and, Derek and the Dominoes. It's Derek and the Dominoes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was the Muppets. Yeah. I went to Dr. Teeth. Yeah, I went to Dr. Teeth and he said, you know what, you don't have to do that shit anymore. <laughs> you know, you'll be all right. Hop in the right. van, we're going to drive. Yeah. But it change, you change your mind, just put this in your vest pocket. <laughs> it will bring you right back to the peak of disaster. <laughs> so this documentary, you didn't even, you know, I, you didn't really even want to make it. And this, it, it basically just seemed like this guy who made the documentary just started hanging around a lot and shooting stuff. And then eventually was like, by the way... Here's a documentary. Steve Kessler is, is you know, was was a, a this kind of chubby little kid who related to him, you know. He, he loved the, all the loneliness in the songs that I wrote. I, you know, when he was like 12 years old, and he and he related to day after day. I must face a world of strangers where I don't belong. I'm not that strong. He got that at 12. So, but he thought I died. He thought I was dead. He thought I, I always thought he died too young. Is the way the movie starts out. But he got online, he found out that I was alive, and that I was off doing a show somewhere or whatever. And, and he approached me about doing this, and my first reaction was, was uh, no, don't know. I have a really nice balance to my life right now, you know. Uh, and he started following me around. I actually had him meet me up in, in Winnipeg for Phantom Palooza. There's a huge thing. Oh, Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise. And I thought, you know what, instead of working, doing a film about me, he should make a film about Phantom Palooza and Phantom of the Paradise. That'll sort of slide him off in that direction, and I'll, I'll slip the bonds, and he'll be gone. <laughs> and basically what happened is I just, you know, he, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And I'm glad he didn't, because what happened was it became a film... A, a buddy movie about him trying to make a movie with me, going to the Philippines, being scared to death, all this stuff. But ultimately, he got all this great archival footage, including some footage of me, that he films me watching, that is just me in a disastrous, just this vapid, shallow, arrogant little prick is loaded on cocaine hosting Merv Griffin. And it's the hardest thing I ever watched, wow. to, to watch that, and him filming me watching it. And I said flat out, you cannot put that in a movie. Then I saw a rough cut of the movie with that in it, and then the ending of what my life is like today. And I thought, if you want this movie to be about recovery, you got to leave it in. So there's some, some tough stuff in the film that's really hard for me to watch, wow. but it's my favorite stuff that's in there. Do you I remember it, anything about about that time or that hosting that show? Or yeah, anything? it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a total blackout period. I mean, I can I would love to say that. You know what? This alcohol managed to, and the cocaine managed to kidnapped my body and my and I was unconscious then I woke up a really nice guy and some in a blackout I did all that shit fact is that in that you know I was I I was well, I was conscious of it but, but I had no sense that that's how I was presenting to the world what's most frightening to me is that I was in the middle of that I was awake and I had no idea what a little prick I'd turned into and how you know how that had all changed and all so that's you know, and I also say that I, you know, that that I have the most boring alcoholic drunkalog in the world. I never came out of a blackout with a Russian arms dealer. I never came out of a blackout with Norman Mailer. We were at the hotel in Paris with a couple. Of you did come out of one with Michael Caine. I'd come out. No, I I came. I'd come out of a blackout of the boys' department of Sears, you know, <laughs> trying on sweaters. You know, like, oh, God, where am I? Oh my God. <laughs> But you know the the, the film is is uh, not a testament to me as much as it is just to the fact that recovery works. 
recovery works. If, and if anybody's listening and they're having major, major problems, uh, there is help for you, you know. Check out the front of your phone book. You'll find the group I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, it, and it, oh, it, Arco, this is a good gas. Yeah. Arco, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, AAA. You're the cheapest gas in the town, and you used to drive to one of those other places. I need you to come and jump inside my battery, and I need help. I need you to take me away. But it, it is, you know, um, it, it is a decision that people have to make. No one can make it for you, yeah. and you really, unfortunately, you have to be ready to say. I am done. I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. And if you're not ready to do that, it's going to be tough. Was yeah. there a uh, was there sort of a moment or a, just a, a, like a like a weekend that made you come out of it and go? I did rehab Fuck. twice. The first time I did rehab was for this little girl that I was in love with, who said, you know, she said, you know, I, I love you too much to watch you die. You're an alcoholic and an addict, and I have to leave. And I went, funny you should mention. I was just thinking of going to rehab. <laughs> just, you know. Wow! Talk about great minds thinking alike. I was just thinking. <laughs> so, you know, we so, should uh, get a baby. Uh, yeah, I'll go to rehab and then we'll get married and have a fabulous life and they'll make movies about us. And what happened is that I, I for about seven months, I was fine. I was absolutely fine. It wasn't, you know, I had no support group. There was nobody. I was just, I, I white knuckled it. I quit drinking. I quit using. And then I went to Jamaica to work on a project. Oh, and, the, boy. and the fabulous thing is, I stayed up all night writing a song that I thought was was like, oh my God. This I don't remember I don't remember the lyrics, but I remember the melody was like, I took my place beside you, girl. Anyway, I woke up the next day, it was about two in the afternoon. I'm sitting there and I, and I get out the little tape recorder and I listen to what I've written and I realize that I have rewritten O Little Town of Bethlehem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took my place beside you, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I, I went, oh, Jesus. I'm, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Nobody <laughs> don't want to steal from him, you know. So at that moment, a guy walks up with a tray full of, you know, booze and glasses and ice, and he says, Mr. Williams, would you, it's a beautiful home in Ocho Rios, right by the pool. Mr. Williams, would you like perhaps a rum and coke? And I went like, Bing, I'm the Paul Williams. I have a star on Hollywood Boulevard. I've got an Oscar on my piano. I've got a couple of Grammys. I can handle one rum and coke. Two o'clock in the afternoon, I had one rum and coke. Two o'clock in, in the morning, I was at Bob Marley's grave explaining reggae to a lot of black people I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Off and running again, you know. So, so yeah. So, and I was out for probably another two years. And then I, in a, in a blackout, I called a doctor, and I just said, I, I can't do it anymore. You know, my dad used to drive drunk with me in the car. I was winding up. I oh, wanted wow. to do the same thing with my kids. I had a home in, in Santa Barbara. I had a home in. In, in L.A., I'd drive back and forth. I couldn't make it from one place to the other without sneaking and drinking it, too. My kids in the car. So I turned into the exact same kind of drunk my dad was. I think there's an alcoholic, there's a genetic propensity, you know, for alcoholism to reappear. You know, there's a, but it's just, I mean, I got to own it. It's who I was. It's what I did. It was pretty awful. Well, it's, wow. you're, you're lucky that it, <laughs> most people don't make it out, you yeah, know. Well, don't. not most, but a lot of people don't make it out. Don't. I think that. I think it's tough. I think it's really tough for kids today. I think you know people because of the 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 intense you know scrutiny of the media, you know, uh, and you know the idea of you know that that uh, you know that you you can be in rehab and somebody can be shooting pictures of you while you're in rehab. Yeah. I did rehab twice. There was nobody waiting for me with a camera, and I was pretty famous when I came out. Not as famous as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think. Um, uh, that whole your the, the genetic predisposition thing 
there's such a there's such a confluence of things that I think have to occur physiologically to get that gene. I think there is a predisposition, and then there's also a personality predisposition, yeah, yeah. and and it's a lot of self medicating and it's, depression and anxiety, and but it fuels and it makes it worse, and you yeah, just don't realize yeah. that the oh, thing I mean, that you're trying to cure. Find that first high, or the way it felt at first, you know, and it becomes a drug dependency. I mean, just people said, oh, that when I quit drinking and using, they said the party's over. I went, oh my god, the party was over in 1981. I had my last drink in 1989, you know. So, so there was a, in my, you know, it, it, there's a party that just keeps using to try to hit normal again, just to try to feel normal, you know. Isn't interesting though and you you must have experienced this at some point but but unless unless you were unless you were drinking at the time but you go out on stage and you you know you perform for tens of thousands of people and you just give everything you got and they love it and you come off stage and then you're just in your room yeah, alone and it's all of a sudden you just feel like how did i just go for it's like it's like it's like coming out of a fire and into like a glacier where all of a sudden it's just the, your environment is now completely isolated yeah yeah it's just bizarre, you know, and, and you know, one of my best friends was Freddie Prince, and Freddie, Freddie was, the, the way that he described it is that he, is that he, even when he's on stage, he couldn't hear the laughter, that there was, an, you know, like, no matter how intense that moment was, there's parts that you, he wouldn't take any of that affection off stage with him. Once he got back to the room, he was just, all he could think about was, what's he going to do on the next Tonight Show? You know, because I can go sing the same songs over and over and over and over and over again, <laughs> but you guys that are funny have mm. to be new funny again and again and again, and it's just, you know, the the intensity of it, yeah, and the isolation, because the life you have back at home when you hit the road doing the shows is gone, you know, so you have your, you've got, you know, for me at least I had my, my band, you have guys with me, but to this day there's a guy named Chris Caswell who's been my music director for years, and he said the thing that's hardest for him is he said it's so weird to see you on the streets at daytime. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like because I would hide, I'd go to the hotel, stay there, anything I wanted, they brought it in. You know, well, it uh, I think you know some of the landscape has changed a little bit because. It's, you know, like the, you know, the record companies and the studios aren't all powerful anymore sure, and trying sure. to, you know, but, uh, but I just, I can't, at the same time that I think it would be really fun to have been a performer in the seventies, I also think what a fucking pit of Mordor to navigate <laughs> yeah. because everyone just thought everything was okay. Like yeah, you could yeah. fuck as many people as you want. You could take any drug and it didn't matter and everything was fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, in the eighties, it was, it was like the bets were being called like, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, I have to have that liver. Remember that fun? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and then, and why are they, why are they hooking up my Ferrari to, to that tow truck? Why, <laughs> what, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> You know, the thing is that these days, the, the the people coming up, though, in the world of music, and I, there are two things that I'm intensely passionate about. I'm intensely passionate about recovery, and the other thing that I'm intensely passionate about is music creators' rights. Mm -hmm. That there are kids that, 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 are, that are beginning their careers right now that are working their asses off, writing songs, you know, making great music, and, and watching, their, their, you know, in the digital world, watching their music, you know, being being shared and and you know, websites you know, that are selling advertising for big bucks and everything, and, and that money not not getting it. You know, I'm, the last four years I've been president and chairman of the board of ASCAP, which is the American Society of Composers, yeah. Authors, and Publishers. We license the music of over four hundred fifty thousand composers and 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 uh, songwriters. I read a uh, statistic yesterday that it takes 47,863 plays on Spotify to equal one album sale. 
for Ugh. the artist. Oh my god, forty-seven thousand eight hundred sixty-five. And on on uh, Pandora, it's something like a hundred and eighty thousand plays. You know, I, I, the the numbers are very high. The, the fact is that along the way, you know, with the, when music was first played on the radio, radio said, you know what, that's not a performance. That's it's an electronic transmission. We don't have to pay you. And and ASCAP and and the government kind of went head to head and. And all of a sudden, it was established. The right was established when music is performed on a, in, in a in a restaurant, in a bar, a grill, or on the radio. It's a performance, and the guy that wrote that music deserves to be paid. So we established the right, and then we went to work on the rate. And you know, a lot of guys have you know have you know th these dollars that are raised wind up be being baby food and gas for the car to take mm -hmm. your kids to school. So we established a right and, and, and worked on the radio and radio did the same thing in television, same thing in cable, same thing in satellite. And, and it's the last thing, you know, the impression that, 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 that has been given that, that I'm trying to erase is that we want to stop the music in any form. There's somebody out there listening right now who loves a website where they're listening to music, you know, and enjoying music. And that, there's a problem with that website. I don't want to see that website shut down. I want to see the the the, the website. That I, I want that music to keep. You know, we don't want to stop the music to the kids at all. Anybody that's enjoying the music, keep the music up and running. But but the but the website, and the server, that is selling all this advertising and making all this money. A little percentage of that needs to come back to the songwriters yeah. and to the artists. You know, the, there's a performance and sound recording bill that's that's being considered right now, and it's just. It's just the right thing, the fair thing to do, but I don't know if these websites are making a lot of money though, so maybe they shouldn't be maybe they just shouldn't be web I mean it's it's, well, it's not the way it's not it's the server. It's the server sure. the, the you know, and any time somebody is selling huge amount he's just selling advertising money, you know we operate under a consent decree. What that means is that is the Justice Department said anybody that asks for a license, you have to give it to them. So yep. we give them a license. Somebody asks for an ASCAP license, we give them the license. But then they then they're then they're not infringing. They have a license. But what about them paying? Sure. So you're playing. You know, you're playing all this music, the hottest music in the world, the best music in the world, and you're selling advertising on, on you know around around it. You need to take a couple percent, maybe two percent of that. That would be nice. You know, whatever. <laughs> just whatever just it is. It, whatever it is. Yeah. Just exactly. anything. I think so it's. So we'll work it out. I th you know. What about the uh, subscription subscription um, sites like RDIO? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, you know, we the, again we license them. We license everybody everywhere, yeah. and you know what? We're working it out, and we're grateful for the people that love the music. You know, if the people didn't love the music, I'd be hot walking horses right now. You know, I'd be like, <laughs> thank God people love the music. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think just everything's just become so incredibly splintered. And it's funny, it's like, for, you know, you have, you have radio and then television and then television splinters into cable and then cable splinters into yeah. satellite. And then, and so then there's hundreds and hundreds of channels and then, then it splinters in the internet where it's just millions. Like it's, a, it's the create, you know, when you sort of look at the pyramid of media distribution over That's the insane. last 40 years, it's yeah. pretty incredible. And so how do you, you know, uh, how do you police that or how do you keep track of that? I think some people are, like for me as a comic, I don't even care if really if people, you know, like if I put up something online, I go, well, I just assume people are not going to pay for it. So hopefully it'll create enough promotion that people will actually pay to see me live. Exactly. Yeah. The difference is, is most songwriters don't sell T-shirts and they don't go out and play club dates. You can raise your. You know, I you can, can do that. Yeah. Can, you can put food on the table yeah. by doing club dates. Sure. You know, and and this a, a choice that you make, which is cool. I understand that. I mean, I you know, you look at songs up on YouTube. I love it when people are lo are listening and loving my music. Please don't. You know, I don't <laughs> want to see that taken down. 
but but again for the you know for the composer the film composer film composers they have a have a, a interesting road right now and and we can't abandon them and we cannot make the the music user uh, our our opponent i mean I, I, my main message is i want people that are using the music to know how much we love that they're using the music we just want to see that that the that, that the middleman who is selling advertising and making sure. a batch of money off the music off your love for the music Needs to, needs to see to it that some of that money makes it to the people that create the music. Yeah. End of sermon. <laughs> Ask me about my love life. Ask me about, uh, wait a minute, no. I'd love to hear a little bit about Phantom of the Paradise, which... Oh, God. Such an amazing... Right? 1973, right? 1974, actually. Four. Yeah, but you're really close. And, and uh, yeah, Brian De Palma came to, to talk to me about writing the, the songs for it. First, I hadn't, you know, there was never an acting thing. And then uh, he he actually offered me the role of the Phantom. He said, "This kind of weird little guy in the rafters, like throwing things on people and all." I went, <laughs> "I can't do that. I, you know, I I'm, I wouldn't be scary enough. I'm not big enough to be scary." And uh, William Finley, who just passed away, who played who played the Phantom, was like with a mask on and all you could see was one eye. He was a better actor than I was, you know, with a close up of my whole being. Mm-hmm. But as we started working on it, Brian went, you know what? You should play Swan, you know, yes. I, I, yeah, the creepy villain. Of, I, yeah, <laughs> that's more like me. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that thing that they did in the seven. I don't feel like we don't really do that anymore where it's the, oh, maybe we do. But just take, you know, taking Phantom of the Opera, like, we're going to make it a rock opera. <laughs> or like <laughs> Xanadu, like, we're going to make idea, it. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. but yeah. Uh, and, and just so visual and so, so. Well, the thing that became interesting to me about Phantom is that we were in the middle of the, of the Vietnam War where people were sitting with, eating their TV dinners and watching the news from Vietnam. And so television had become, even the news had become entertainment. So a big part of the story of Phantom of the Paradise is that there's a murder on stage and the kids think it's part of the show. I mean, and Swan, who is the devil, loves it. It's like, you know, an assassin. He, at the end of the picture, he sets up an assassination on live television and... And his, the guy that works for him says, I don't understand why you're doing that. And so on. And my character says, an assassination live on coast-to-coast television? That's entertainment. <laughs> Very ahead of its time. Favorite line in the movie. And, and that's the essence of the film to me. But it's all, also some great performances and, and um, a chance for me to, to satirize a lot of songs, that, you know, styles of music that I just love. I mean, I'm a huge Beach Boy fan, so I could write a song called Upholstery, which was, you know, <laughs> when my baby sits up close to me, you know, take off on the Beach Boy. Did, did you ever work with, uh, with, with uh, what, Brian? Brian, no. Brian, actually, we, we, we've met a couple of times and, and talked about it, but it's, it was after the fact. It was He called once about 11 at night, his guy called and said, you know, <laughs> Brian wants you to come out. And, you know, I said, too late in the day for Paulie, you know. <laughs> you'll need, I'll need about three days to prep, you know. So, But I'm just a huge, huge fan. And there's a guy named Tony Asher who wrote some of his lyrics, God Only Knows and all yeah. like that. Who, Actually, Tony Asher was supposed to do a song for a commercial, broke his arm skiing, and gave the job to, to Roger Nichols and I, and it became We've Only Just Begun, our first <laughs> Jesus huge Christ. Hit. So, wow. <laughs> what, was the, what was your relationship with the Carpenters like? You know, nobody knew who we were. Roger Nichols and I were writing songs that were being recorded as quickly as we'd write them, but they were never on the air. They were album, uh, album cuts and B-sides, and, you know, all these different groups would cut our songs, put them on their albums, but nothing was getting played. And one day there was a knock on the door and the head of, of, of A&M came in and introduced us to these kids, you know, Richard and Karen Carpenter. 
And they'd just been signed to the label. And they said, and as they're walking away, Richard was like, I loved the trust on the on the Peppermint Trolley album, and I loved the the Drifter by Steve uh, uh, Steve Lawrence, and I really loved and he. He and Karen knew all of our stuff. I was hmm. like, "What? You're the one." Wait a minute! <laughs> finally, found somebody who knows who we are. They just had a great awareness of of what we were doing, and, and then Richard heard that me singing this two verses of the song that that we wrote for a commercial for Crocker Bank, and uh, he asked, called and asked if there was a full length version of it. I said, "Absolutely." And if there wasn't, I'd have lied through my teeth, and we'd have written it the next day. Hmm. But, yeah, so we sent it over. We thought we'd get an album cut. We thought maybe it'd be a B-side. You know, an angel sang it, and it it became the wedding song of the 70s, pretty much. You know. But there, even, and especially when you know the tragic story of Karen Carpenter, it's interesting that there's this sort of parallel between, you know, what Steve described as this kind of loneliness in your music. And even when Karen Carpenter was singing about, you know, we're a couple, and there was still... There was still such a loneliness yeah. in it that now it's interesting to know that you are sort of the soul of, of that. I was, you know, I think that, you know, I just, you know, I, I describe the songs that I write as basically codependent anthems, you know. They're just, you know, <laughs> they're just I mean, it won't have to do with you is not a healthy thought. I know that. I've, I've, done, I've done a lot of therapy, you know. I understand that, but I like... You know, I like women better than guys. As soon as I found out there was a difference, I was at the right height to discover the difference right away. That is, <laughs> that, is a, a, that is a physical preference, not a, not a moral judgment. I, you know, I love. I want everybody to be able to marry anybody, and as long as it's both your ideas, go for it. Uh, but my, you know, my, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I had a very inactive love life. Until I picked up a guitar and played a girl a song, and she tilted her head and went, "Wow!" And I went, "Well, back, my life just changed." <laughs> and uh, I think that I've always, you know, I've written about about relationship. I've written about kind of a mystical, uh, imagined relationship a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, and I've had, I mean, I've been married three times to some amazing ladies, and and. Uh, uh, you know, I I think that I that, that was I try to write rock and roll. I you know I wanted to be David Bowie. There was already a David Bowie. You wrote with Bowie though, didn't you? But I, I wrote. Well, Biff Rose and I wrote a song called "Fill Your Heart," which David Bowie recorded. It was the first outside song David ever recorded. It's on the Hunky Dory album. It was very very cool. But you know, but the fact is that most of the songs that I had were hits when I was really being authentic. You know, young writers will say to me, "What's the trick?" And I go, "Be yourself." But don't most people don't be, know what don't that is. Don't try to be anybody else. You know, as a comedian, as a, as a songwriter, as an actor, as a writer, whatever, we want your story. We need your story. We need your essence. You know. So what I wrote was about you know my own longing or my own, you know, you know. I wrote old fashioned love songs. I mean, I wrote old fashioned love songs. <laughs> 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 you know, so you know, but it's funny because I'll listen to stuff that that I that I wrote in in the seventies. That is about my my life, you know, in in the you know in in 2012. I mean, I listened to you know, Family of Man, this tired city was somewhere out in the country, and and there's there are elements of of you know the whole you know the environmental movement that are in, in those two songs, the things that I think about now that I didn't think about then. Why would I write about? Uh, out in the country before the breathing air is gone, before the sun is just isn't a that interesting? In the nighttime, your subconscious mind or like somewhere in you. 
you're you're expressing all these ideas, and when you're expressing them, you're not even fully aware of what they yeah. are, and you yeah. need you sort of need that hindsight to go, oh fuck, that's what I was <laughs> talking right, about. Yeah. I think that our I think that collectively, it, it, it's not just me. I think it's all of us. I think that our unconscious is immensely powerful. When I sat down to write the first song for the Muppet Christmas Carol, it was about Scrooge. You see his feet coming out of the door. He, he plops, He's walking around through the mud. Splashing as he goes by these little creatures, they seem to get colder. I had no idea what to write. No cheeses for us, Mises. It's just I, I, I look, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but the first song is about Scrooge, and I, I literally sat down and went, said to my unconscious, or to God, or the big, or the big amigo, or the creative, whatever. I, you know, I read the original, I read the original Christmas Carol, read the, read the book. Read the script, looked at what I was writing, and went, "All right, idea brain up there, you big whatever where this comes from. Let me know when you have an idea." And I, I picked up a Lawrence Block novel and I started reading. I was about three pages in it, and I put it. When I went, "Okay, his feet coming out of the book, out of the door." Put a bump, 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 bump. Put a bump, 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 bump. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. I went, Jesus, that's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are good. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed is the one that we call Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. There There goes goes Mr. Mr. Grimm. They gave a prize for being mean. The winner would be him. him. It poured out of me. (laughs) And what I realized is that I looked at the song that I was supposed to write about four days before I wrote it. And between the time when I looked at the song I was supposed to write and me even thinking about it again, my unconscious had been working on it. And I think that we all have that power. I think you have an intense, uh, intense ability to use a part of your, you know, if you have a problem, you think about the problem, you go away and look at something else, some piece of you, some creative bit of your brilliance, your brilliance, continues to work on that problem. And I think the more we trust that, if we can really trust who we are, we can do really fine work. It's almost like uh, it's almost like on your phone where the apps run in the background. It's like you have these background programs yep. that are running. Oh, totally. It's just the same way, like, oh, I lost something. I don't remember where it is. Well, I'll just let it go, and I'm sure I'll find it. And then yeah. a day later, you're like, oh, fuck, yeah. right, it's in the drawer. Or the classic example, you're trying to remember somebody's name. You can't think about it. You can't remember. You, you, you try, you try, you try. You can't think of it. You think about something else, and it pops into your head. Why, why did it roll into your head later? Because your unconscious was continuing to work on the problem. It was leaping through the, the filing cabinet going, <laughs> okay, it's in here, it's in here, it's in here. Artie Johnson found it. Artie Johnson! <laughs> Artie Johnson, of course. You know? did, you, did you spend a lot of time on the, with the Laugh-In crew? I knew. I, I, I played golf some with Artie through the years, and, and uh, I loved them, you know. But, but uh, I was friends with... Um, uh, with Dan Martin through Bill Bixby. I was, Bill Bixby and I had a production company called Loophole Productions. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we, had a, yeah, we, we, we planned a lot of things that never got made. We did a couple things that got made, but Bixby and I were great friends, and he, he was great friends with, uh, with Dan Martin. But, but uh, um, you know, I, no, I, I, didn't really, I wasn't around there. That was kind of before me. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Before my time, I'm not that old. No, I know, but then, but but I feel like in the '70s there was this. Um, Look, yeah. There was Look. a you know there was a group. It was sort of a game show crew that like it's just basically television personalities like the, Joanne Worley or that's you know where, that's Paul I, met, I met Bill Bixby because he was I, he was I was doing this Tonight Show. I was walking backstage and he was doing Hollywood Squares and we walked by each other. Both went around a corner and then both came back and said, "I can't walk by you. I got to meet you." I mean, I just I was such a huge fan of Bixby's from Courtship of Eddie's father. And, my favorite and, Martian. Yeah. 
yeah, exactly. My favorite Martian. But uh, but yeah, and the best, you know, you know, I the just the pure joy of showing up at at Hollywood Squares or you know or. Uh, or the match game, and the match game was fucking you know, match was, game. You know, great fun. I mean, I, I co-hosted Dinah for a couple of years. You know, myself, uh, Charles Nelson Riley, uh, uh, the football <laughs> player. What's his name? Uh, Rosie Greer. Dan Meredith. Uh, that's the only Dan football player. Meredith, I know. Yeah, Don, Don Meredith and Don Meredith. Uh, anyway, there were like four of us that were co-hosts and all. But you, you go do the. Go and do Hollywood Squares. You never knew. You sit down and there's Vincent Price. You know, there's, <laughs> you know, there's uh, uh, all these amazing stars that some of whom I'd been watching since I was this high. Well, I mean, that's what I was like, yeah, <laughs> but uh, so it was a, it was great fun. I had a lot of fun. There's a scene in the in the movie where uh, where Steve Kessler. I get very pissy with him about it. He asked me. He said, you know. You're writing these great songs, then all of a sudden you're doing the Gong Show, and he said, "I didn't see, uh, I didn't see Paul Simon doing the Gong Show. I saw him doing Saturday Night Live." And I said, "Well, I, they didn't ask me to do Saturday Night Live. I wish they had. They, you know, I wish I'd written Bridge Over Troubled Waters. <laughs> but I wonder if there isn't some part of Paul, and I'll ask him someday. Do you ever kind of this, just have this deep longing that you'd done the Gong Show with me? <laughs> <laughs> Please just say yes. yes exactly. Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. there? I mean, you know, even even at that time, do do, do the hit song does it, does the success mean anything to you at the time, or were you too caught up in it, or were you too ahead of it, or I were was you having a really good time? I lived up in Santa Barbara. I was great friends with Robert Mitchum, and and uh, who was my favorite, one of my favorite actors ever. Robert Mitchum was one of the great bad boys. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know who. Of course, was. I mean, he was one of the great bad boys ever. You know. Robert Mitchell. So I love Robert Mitchell. I call him the goose. He called me the doughboy. You know, he was very doughboy. He go, doughboy, come here. Hey, doughboy, this shit's no good, but you might like it. You know, he'd give you something that was scraped off of King Tut's body. You know, that would cross, your, cross your cross your eyes, and your brain would disappear. You know, would, would turn into you know Pillsbury powder, and just oh my god. But yeah, and I, I loved actors, and I loved you know I, that was that was the thing is that I was I always felt like I was a guest in somebody else's media. You know, I was writing songs, but the songs I was writing were really about what was going on in my in the center of my chest. You know, then I also got the chance to write songs for movies and you know, Stars Born and you know the Bugsy Malone and the Muffin Movie. Bugsy Malone, things, oh my know. God, I have the Bugsy Malone soundtrack on my laptop. Uh, the, that was the gift of Jodie Foster and Scott Baio in the same movie. Wow! The whole, it was, so it was an amazing time for me. But I the lo- Pie Guns. <laughs> I'm, I can't get off of Paul. I'm sorry. I fucking loved Bugsy Malone when I was a kid. I had the soundtrack. I listened to that album over and over and no, oh, it could have been anything that we, we wanted to be. be. Like fucking that, that, that too late to change. Yeah. What's so funny is that when I when I bought the album again on uh, a, a couple of years ago, I, I was listening to it and found that. I still remembered all of the, like when the songs were like, how, I, I haven't thought about these songs in forever and I remember them. You know what? And they just, they rolled out of me really quickly and all, but it's, you know, and, and God bless Coca-Cola because two years in a row they did their Grand Theft Auto takeoff of, of that commercial. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. Na, 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 na. It was the end of, two lines from the end of Bugsy Malone that 
became a Coke commercial for which we are forever grateful, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Cola. <laughs> did, after all, after that period in, in the 80s, did you, I mean, this may be too personal, so you don't have to no. tell me this, I'll fuck off, but um, it did... Did like all of the? I just think. Well, if you were a rock star in the '70s, millions and millions of dollars at your disposal. Did you? Did all that go away? Did you blow all that, or were you? Were you well, managed? That's the great thing about you know about royalties. That's the great thing about you know you, you create an annuity with the songs, whatever. So, I also had really good business managers. I never hit a financial bottom. Oh, good. And the fact the financial bottom, you know, I actually probably would have would have been better if I had. You know, if I'd run out of money. Maybe out of you know I would have actually left the house and quit doing blow for ten years, you know. Um, but but no, I never hit a financial bottom. You and, never had you know, either my, of Billy my, Joel's my financial managers. Graduated from Smith with, with not a penny of debt. You know everything. Every it, it, my life has been extremely blessed. But you know the thing is that that there were other huge mistakes that I made. I mean my my kids never never lacked for. For anything financially, but my kids lacked for having a dad that was there, that was there on the sidelines at a ball game. Their dad was was uh, was either on the road or loaded, you know. So, the relationship I have with my son, who's a th- wonderful actor named Cole Williams, who's 31 now, my daughter, who's a uh, a, a social worker just got her master's in social work, so she's going to be rolling in the money. <laughs> but she's at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And she's she's a vic- victim's advocate. She's working with. With rape victims, she's working with the the post traumatic stress victims of the Aurora shooting. I mean, oh, wow. I've got amazing kids, and I have a great relationship with them today. Oh, good, good. And it's despite the fact that when they were, you know, they were like maybe my son was eight, my daughter was five when I got sober. So, the, so for my son, those first eight years, you know, and for her, the first five, I just wasn't there. But then they also, there's the first 10 years of sobriety when you don't know how to be people. It's like, how do you do this? It's, it's crazy, like, isn't it? You don't, the, the emotions come and you're like, what's that? It's almost like, oh, so you'll be okay in a year? I'm okay. Yeah, in a year I'll be fine. No, but it's, it's almost like, it's almost like, um, it, because you've been suppressing those, you've been suppressing your coping mechanisms for so yeah, long yeah. that it's almost like getting, like if you if you were a Nosmic and you couldn't smell before, and all of a sudden you can smell, and you're like, "What? That's pizza? What oh my god!" And yeah. and it's it's a yeah. little overwhelming for a while. Yeah, and I think that you know that that when we begin, when, for me, when I began self medicating, I also began saying, "I'm fine," and you know what. For the first time to actually turn to people and, you know, if, if, if when I was drinking and using, you asked me how, how a jet engine worked, I'd, I would sit there and to explain, and knowing nothing about jet engines, <laughs> I would explain to you uh, about, you know, about how a jet engine worked, bullshit my way through it to, up to a point where I got the hell out of the room and everything. You know? Now, if you ask me that I, how, how something works and I don't know what it is, my mouth will start going and then I go, wait a minute, I don't know anything about jet engines. <laughs> But I'm now present in, in being rigorously honest in the moment, and I am now capable of learning about jet engines. Well, I'm also capable of learning about how to be a dad that listens. I'm capable of learning to be how, how to somebody in a relationship, you know, that asks, what would you like to do, honey, once in a while, instead of just going, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to stay home tonight. Right. So the, the growth socially, you know... I started to be, you know, do a fair imitation of of a, of a grown up, at around maybe fifty seven, you know, uh, maybe seven years, eight years sober, is when I really got to the point where, you know, where I was connecting with with the rest of the world, with with I think and reaching past my own insecurities, my own, you know, I wasn't selling anybody anything, 
and my fear of, of the, uh, the exchange had dissipated and I'd begun to trust. I, I live in gratitude and trust and, and it works for me on a daily basis. That's good. I, I, I find that, um, that sometimes when you start to get overwhelmed a little bit, and it's easy to, and everyone, you know, everyone goes through it, but if you can just be present in the moment and just yep. go, I'm going to release all this shit except for just whatever gratitude I have for being in this moment. Like, if you can just sort of scoop all that away in the moment and distract your brain for a second, yeah. it's tremendously helpful of you not going down made, those pits. See, it's worth you having blown the years you think you, think you blew to have just said what you said to your listeners. For you to have just said that and to share that with your listeners makes it, in other words, instead of having lost the years, you yeah. just use them. And, you, and what you get, what you're able to use, the, you know, the lessons you're able to pass forward you know, when you speak honestly about what, how you feel today compared to how you felt then, is beyond what you'll ever be able to measure. You'll never be able to measure how much good you're capable of doing by being honest in front of that microphone. Oh, that's, that's wow. Oh, come on. Get oh, out of here. Oh, what are you Shut doing? Give me, give, me give me your money. Give me the pie Give me the pie gun. This was a long con. I got to make a joke now. This is what he a... calls royalties. Yeah. He's robbing us. <laughs> yeah. That's very special. I really appreciate that. You're that's that, that That's really nice. And, and, I, and I think it's, you know, I think so many people who listen to this podcast are very similarly brained and, you know, it's it's there 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 is you know we we do live such isolated internal lives now particularly because yeah. technology as great as it is has we're allowed all, us to do that our hands all day exactly yeah. and so we you know we're in our heads all day and and we overthink things and we worst case scenario and you know so I think it is important for people to realize like. Yeah, all that shit is one possible reality, but it doesn't mean that you you can choose to not do that. I know it's not easy, but you can. You can choose. Well, can I tell your listeners that that I am capital I, capital M, capital P A U with a small all and a and a capital W Paul Williams. I am Paul Williams is my Twitter account. And that I want them to all come and tell me what they think of this show because I'll never do it again <laughs> if I don't hear from at least eight hundred people. <laughs> oh my god! This is your last podcast. My last podcast. But the but the movie uh, the my movie, last first podcast. <laughs> yeah. The, the Paul, Williams still, Paul Williams is still alive. Uh, uh, where can people see this this movie? Well, they can download it on iTunes or at Amazon. It'll be on Showtime. I think in, in starts in the end of December or January. Oh nice! And it had you know it had I think it's done its time in theaters for right now. But yeah, at, at iTunes you can download it, and I wrote a title song for it, which is getting some nice attention from from people called "Still Alive." You know, and it uh, it's a, a song about you know it's interesting to write a song about your own life where you always sit and watch a movie and write a title song for that movie. But well, that's just such a literal like you know because ultimately the songs you're always writing are ultimately about you, but to actually write a song about yourself specifically, it must be an interesting. Well, yeah, look, I look at myself in that stuff, and it came out of me. I don't know you in those clothes. I don't know you with that hair. Two-dimensional reflection, unforgiving, unaware. Part-time dreamer, would-be player. You thought fame could outrun fear. Something clearly terrified you. Did you choose to disappear? Guess again. <laughs> Guess again. You made friends, and some still ask about you now and then. Witness today. My favorite thing, lines in the in the song are the bridge, and, and it's about the people that didn't make it. And someone asked me once, "Where do we go when we arrive? If you're lucky, when it's over, the dreamer's still alive. A blessed mystery, for sweeter souls did not survive. But if you're lucky, when it's done, somehow deep inside, 
the dreamer's still alive. In me, the dreamer's still alive. And for Janis Joplin and for Whitney Houston and for all the, the sweeter souls that did not survive, I hope that the film will, will do a little bit of good about, about spreading the word that recovery works. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I, I think the most important thing besides just, well, this is a really interesting, you know, biopic about you and the journey that you went through. I think that's ultimately the thing that people need to take away and understand why it's, you know, why it's important that, that it is because it's not just, it's not just a, it's not a narcissistic, like, oh, I want to be, I want to get attention again. It's like you, you have to hear the story because you need to, if you're, if you're fucking, if you're fucking up or if you're not, if you don't, if you feel like you're fucking up, you, you need to know that this is, this can work. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think, I think that's the important. There's yeah. hope for the hopeless. Are you going to, now the bigger question is, are, are you, are you, do you have plans to go tour again or do you, or do you like, nah, I don't really want to do that stuff anymore. It's like, is the, do you feel the old pull of it a little bit? You know what? I, 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 I the, this ASCAP gig, as president of ASCAP, I spend a lot of time on the road for ASCAP. I'm also writing a book with a co-writer right now, a woman named Tracy Jackson, and I are writing a book, uh, and which which I'll come back and talk to you about that one. Sure. Done. And there's another big project that'll be out in the spring that I can't talk about. Okay. But I'll tell you off the air. Sure. It'll be. It's really exciting. Oh, that's awesome. But you know what? What I've got at this point is is that I wake up in the morning and I I, I look up at the heavens and I go, surprise me, God. You know, lead me where you need me. I have no idea where this day is going to go, but I know it's going to be busy and hopefully uh, that I'll get out of the way and and won't just talk about myself all day, but maybe we'll actually listen a little bit and, and learn something, do a little good. So. Well, Paul Williams, this, is, a good time this has been amazing. You have got That's to come great. back on. We Please come back on anytime Fantastic. you want. Talk Thank about you. stuff. Um, I'd and love to. Thank you for the way you all treated me. Oh, of course. Please. Come on. Well, thank you for everything. I was really nice. I really was. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take my cran blueberry crunch and go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Paul got really mad all of a sudden. What the fuck would I do? With yeah. this? Uh, all right. Enjoy, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast was brought to you by Anomaly, the graphic novel. Get the books wherever books are being sold, and then check out the apps in the iTunes and Google Play stores. Anomaly. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 65th National Finals of Distinguished Young Women. Every year, one girl from every state leaves her family, her whole life behind, for two weeks and spends each day training, practicing, preparing. Because to win this competition, she needs to wow a panel of judges with her academic record, her athletic ability, her speaking skills, and a show-stopping talent. I met her and I was like, she's going to win. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. When I sing that song about being a black woman in America, there's going to be backlash about that. Oh, just so happy. So happy. I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. And then we stayed with them for the next year, unpacking just what happened those two weeks in Mobile. I'm Shimoliai, and from Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.